Welcome to Her Story, the history of Southeast Asia told from her perspective. We'll discover historical figures, matriarchal societies, and contemporary female icons, and maybe learn about ourselves along the way. I'm Agas Ramirez. First, I'd like to welcome Ashley to the Patreon. She joins Shireen, Chanda, Laura, Yati, Kara, and Mando in making her story. It's the one-year anniversary of the podcast, so all patrons are getting something special through the mail. In this episode, we're taking a deep dive into the Cham, a matriarchal and matrilineal society descended from the Kingdom of Champa, whose members now mostly reside in Vietnam and Cambodia. Later in this episode, we'll meet Ang Mei, one of only three female Cambodian rulers who was queen during a pivotal moment in Cham history. In episode 5, we talked about the Minangkabau, a matrilineal society in West Sumatra, Indonesia, which traces descent and inheritance through the female line. But they're not alone in Southeast Asia. Another very important matrilineal and matriarchal society is the Cham. In fact, they appear on practically every list out there along with the Mosuo of China and the Garo of India. There is a fairly comprehensive account of the Cham that I found in Paul Hawking's 1993 Encyclopedia of World Cultures. According to him, the Cham, who were known by other names like Kiam, Ngoi Champa, and Chame, represent the remnant of the once large and powerful Champa Kingdom, dominant in the Vietnamese coastal region from about 200 AD until its collapse in 1471. Champa was actually formed during the breakup of the Han Dynasty of China. This happened because the Han official in charge of the region decided he wanted his own kingdom, which he established around the area of the present city of Hue. The then four states of Champa had a lot of Indian cultural influence. They remained concentrated in small coastal enclaves, but they had a powerful fleet that was used for commerce and for piracy. They also controlled the Sea of Champa, which is today known as the South China Sea. In the year 400, Champa was united under the rule of King Badravarman. In 446, in retaliation for Cham raids on their coast, the Chinese invaded them. This would last until the 6th century when Champa threw off its allegiance to China. This is when they became very prosperous. It was an era of great independent prosperity and artistic achievements. This would see the rise of Champa's elaborate temples. You can still see them today if you travel along Vietnam's central coastline. The Mison Sanctuary was constructed over 10 centuries, dedicated to Hindu divinities such as Shiva, Krishna, and Vishnu. On the road leading into Muine from Phan Thiet, you'll see the Posai Nu Towers. And on a hill above Natrang, there are huge brick columns that line the entrance to the Ponagar Temple, dedicated to a local goddess, Yan Ponagar. It features a carving of Durga, a female warrior goddess associated with Yan Ponagar. At its peak, Champa's vast trade network had routes extending northeast to China, Taiwan, and Japan, and south to Malaysia and Indonesia. 
Their wealth in gold and silver, gems, spices, aromatic agarwood, exotic animals, and even slaves was renowned all the way to India, the Middle East, and even the farthest reaches of North Africa. There is a famous shipwreck known as the Pandanan, which was discovered in 1993 off the coast of Palawan in the Philippines. It is believed to have left the Champa coast sometime between 1450 and 1470, carrying green glazed ceramics made in the Cham Kingdom of Vijaya. The Pandanan is a permanent exhibit at the National Museum of the Philippines and is something I look forward to revisiting once the pandemic is over. Champa was actually the only culture of mainland Asia with Oceanian or Oceanic features. According to Hawkins, it is assumed that the original home of the Cham was Java. If you're just joining us, of course, Java is an island between Sumatra and Bali, and it is the geographic and economic center of Indonesia today. Scholars believe that the Cham migrated from Java to the so-called Indochina. This is a bit of an outdated term you'd mostly find today in older books or documentaries. Indochina means the three countries of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Cham culture was centered around Vietnam and Cambodia, so that's south-central Vietnam, and in the Ton Le Sap and Chao Doc areas of Cambodia. As always, I apologize for any mispronunciations. There were around 155,000 Cham reported living in these areas in 1980. The Cham follow two religious systems. Besides Hinduism, they also follow Islam. To make it simple, we'll refer to those who follow Hinduism as Balamon Cham. They're the larger group. And those who follow Islam, Bani Cham, which is the smaller group. Of significance to us, of course, is their kin group and descent. Georges Maspero, who in 1928 published Le Champa, or the Kingdom of Champa, observed that the Cham had a matrilineal clan system that predated their Hinduization. Succession to the office of the king was patrilineal, not matrilineal, perhaps showing Hindu influence. And here's another thing. Remember the Oceanic features? The kin group system was said to be totemic. What this means is members of the clan bear the name of the totem and commonly trace their descent from it. There was a documented struggle between the coconut tree clan and the Arica nut tree clan. And remarkably, at least for me, Hawaiian kinship terminology was employed for first cousins. Now let's go to what puts Cham under the matriarchal and matrilineal categories. I found at least five. First, once a Cham woman reaches the age of consent, she is allowed a considerable degree of freedom in who to marry. She can choose from her own faith or from others, and she can initiate the courtship process. Second, polygynous unions are permitted with the consent of the first wife. The first wife is responsible for introducing new spouses into the household. Economic factors do come into play. Polygyny is limited to the more wealthy Cham, and divorce is permitted and usually initiated by the wife. Third, postmarital residence is matrilocal. This means that, like the Minangkabao, the husband goes to live with the wife's community. Fourth, the inheritance of property, succession rights, and prerogatives related to ancestral worship is through the female line. And fifth, Cham women are also chief agents of socialization. Significantly, among the Hindu Cham, religious practitioners included the Paja, or the celebrate priestesses who officiate at domestic ceremonies, and the Rija, or the family priestess, who officiates at family-based rites. 
Then a bunch of things happened to the kingdom of Champa. I'll summarize it really quickly. First, the Vietnamese kingdom of Dai Viet began to exert pressure on Champa, forcing it to relinquish two of its four states, Amaravati and Vijaya. Harivarman IV, who in 1074 founded the 9th Cham Dynasty, was able to stave off further Vietnamese and Cambodian attacks. But in 1145, the Khmer, under Suryavarman II, conquered Champa. The next king of Champa defeated the Khmer, and the next king sacked Angkor, but in the 1200s, they became a Cambodian suzerainty again. A suzerainty is when you're able to operate independently inside your state, but your foreign policy is controlled by someone else. Then they were attacked by the Tran kings of Vietnam, and then by the Mongols in 1284. And after all of this, by the 15th century, Champa was gone. The provinces were annexed one by one, and by the 17th century, they were completely absorbed by other kingdoms. The Cham are a unique group of people, and they have made the influences of different religions and regions their own. But of course, their story didn't end when Champa fell apart. Today, they are an ethnic minority. They don't feature prominently in state or regional affairs. Maybe you hadn't even heard of them before this. And beyond the banner of matriarchal or matrilineal society, which is often the only thing you'll read about them, there are pressing issues that plague the Cham communities scattered all over Southeast Asia. After the break, we'll talk about the Champa settlements in Vietnam and Cambodia, and we'll go on a tangent to meet Ang Mei, a Cambodian queen whose short reign was intertwined with these settlements. Hi, we're Tuk Tuk Box. We're passionate food lovers and culture junkies dedicated to telling the stories of our diaspora. We're an online retailer focused on showcasing Southeast Asian culture and experiences through food. We offer an array of Southeast Asian subscription boxes and products through our partnerships with vetted small business owners and local farmers. Everything we offer is exclusively a product of Southeast Asian entrepreneurs, creatives, and chefs, made using carefully crafted ingredients and recipes from our own community. We are proud to share refugee, migrant, and intergenerational stories in every box we produce. In telling these stories, we aim to foster conversations around racism and colorism in our society, ultimately helping make social change. We are 100% Southeast Asian owned and female founded. Check out our various products now on our website, tuktukbox.com. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok under at tuktukbox. Hope you discover something new. Stay safe and stay snacking. The last Champa principality in the South was Panduranga, and they had the prince, Poche Bray. He was in Cambodia, and he fled as the Siamese were trying to invade. He tried to join the Khmer king, Ang Chan, in Phnom Penh, which you know is the capital of Cambodia today. But King Ang Chan already left to go to Jia Din Tan in the south, so the prince and his people followed him there. The governor general allied with the king tucked them in, and even Poche Bray's heirs became administrators of this region, so you can see the type of relationship that they had. I'm oversimplifying things a bit here. If you want the full account of this, you can access Nicholas Weber's article on the Patreon. Fast forward to King Ang Chan's death. We're going on a tangent here, but it is important because we need to know how the Cham were displaced. 
1835, after the death of Ang Chan, the Vietnamese put his daughter, Ang Mi, on the throne of Cambodia. This wasn't supposed to happen because this was against Khmer traditional laws of succession. Women aren't allowed to rule. There are actually only two other queens in Cambodian history that we know of, Queen Soma of the 1st century and Queen Sisoa, who reigned from the time of her husband's death in 1960 until the monarchy was abolished. The Vietnamese chose Ang Mei because they judged her as the least likely to side with the Siamese among the surviving daughters. And Ang Chan, he didn't have any sons. Ang Mei, who was maybe 20 years old at the time, was a puppet ruler. They crowned her to undermine the Khmer monarchy and eliminate the influence of the traditional Khmer elites and political families. They wanted to isolate them from Siam. At the time, the mother of Princess Ang Ten, one of Ang Mei's three sisters, lived in Batambang, which was a Siamese provincial capital. At one point, the Vietnamese intercepted a letter written by Princess Ang Pen to her mother begging for help. Because of the correspondence with the invaders, the queen and her sisters were arrested and imprisoned in Vietnam. Queen Ang Mei and her two sisters, Ang Peo and Ang Sngon, were held under close surveillance. Ang Pen was tortured and put to death. Rumors of the imminent execution of Queen Ang Mei and her remaining sisters spread, and a massive revolt broke out. The Vietnamese had to retreat and reinstate her, but they didn't want to lose their control over Cambodia. So here's when this guy, General Trong Minh Yang, comes in. He was in charge of the colonization of Cambodia, and he had an idea. He figured that the displaced Chams and Malays could be the soldiers they needed to pacify the Khmer. So in 1841, he settled 2,000 of them in the fortress of Chao Doc. We're not sure how they were taken from Nom Pen to the fortress, but once they were there, they were integrated into the military in order to help the Vietnamese in counterattacks against the Khmer Siamese coalition. They were specifically positioned to respond to any revolts. There were more forced migrations after that of maybe 4,000 Cham and Malay civilians to the fortress at Chao Doc, and then later there were voluntary migrations too. The Vietnamese controlled where they could live and what they could do, but it was a policy of integration with the Viet-populated areas. Through these military colonies, the Vietnamese were able to defend their frontier and administrative centers and increase their controlling areas populated by the Khmer and other ethnic groups. And so time went on. The Cham, the descendants of the once mighty Champa kingdom, were displaced and living in areas in Vietnam and Cambodia. There's a lot more to this, but we'll leave it for another day because we're jumping to the next part of the story. Three generations of one family that may have had none. Zakaria and his wife survived the reign of terror by the Khmer Rouge in the late 1970s. The Chams, an ethnic Muslim minority, were prime targets and many of their relatives disappeared. Their granddaughter's joy helps heal the pain of the past, but they'll never forget the days when even to pray was to risk death. When the, the Khmer Rouge asked them, asked Cham people to prove their identity or ethnicity, and most of them uh, told them, told the Khmer Rouge that they were Cham, as a result they were killed. However, those who lied to them uh, that they were Khmer, so they survived. Trigger warning, genocide. From 1975 to 1979, 
Cambodia was ruled by the Khmer Rouge. They were communist extremists determined to erase all non-Khmer characteristics from the population. The Cham were special targets of the Khmer Rouge for a couple of reasons. The Cham were religious, remember, we talked about this in the beginning, and Pol Pot wanted all religion gone. But the Khmer Rouge didn't just want to destroy Islam, they wanted to exterminate the Cham community. This was because their unique culture and intricate social networks were seen as a hindrance to the new society they wanted to create. According to Ben Kiernan's excellent article, Orphans of Genocide, the systematic elimination of the Cham began in 1975 in an area called Krauchmar. The Khmer Rouge came to collect Korans, close the mosques, force them to eat pork, and force the girls to cut their hair short in the Khmer style. The Chams retaliated, so the Khmer Rouge raised the village and changed its name from Kopol, or Productive Island, to Kopes, Island of Ashes. Seven days later, in the nearby Sbai Klang village, fighting broke out and 70% of the Chams were murdered. And on it went, an estimated 90,000 Kampuchean Chams, one-third of the population, died at the hands of the Khmer Rouge. By the end, only 20 of the 113 community leaders survived, and just 38 out of 300 religious teachers. I highly recommend that you read Orphans of Genocide for accounts of what happened from the survivors themselves. Today, the Cham people are one of 54 state-recognized ethnic groups living in Vietnam. In 1999, census indicated there were over 130,000 of them living there. Many can be found in the general area where Panduranga, the last Cham province, used to be. In Cambodia, many of the approximately 600,000 Cham people live along the Mekong River, earning their living through fishing. They are not a prosperous community, often living in makeshift houses on the riverbank. And the fight against discrimination is not over for them. For example, in 2019, District Chief Klanghua gave the Cham a one-week deadline to leave, quote, to ensure security, safety, order, beauty, and public order, and in preparation for the Asia-Europe meeting, and to lift up the reputation and beauty of Phnom Penh City, unquote. According to Adam Bray, the Cham are one of the few ethnic minorities in Indochina to have developed their own writing system based on Sanskrit. But very few can still read and write in their native language, and the spoken language is at risk of eradication too, because government policy requires the use of Vietnamese in schools, commerce, and public activities. Some senior Cham leaders have developed ties with the government, but faced with a lack of education, many of them remain marginalized. Some of them have found ways to keep some of their traditions alive, Bangkok's Cham community, for example, connects to their matriarchal heritage through silk weaving. The craft was passed down through generations of Cham women who migrated from Cambodia. The Muslim weavers of Ban Kroa are proud of their work as a main supplier of Jim Thompson House, which popularized Thai silk after World War II. Jim Thompson House is a real house, by the way. You can go see it today. But like many minorities, they are facing the challenges of the modern world, where youth are less likely to be interested in traditional culture and craft.
In this episode, we trace the rise and fall of a powerful Southeast Asian kingdom known for its matriarchal and matrilineal practices. This episode was unexpectedly heavy, I know, but if anything, this underscores the need for us to understand how interconnected events have shaped this region and how communities like the Cham are struggling with the weight of history. And maybe it's up to us to make sure they don't get lost in it. Producing a podcast like this takes a lot of time and research. If you like what we do, consider joining our Patreon, like Ashley, Shireen, Chanda, Laura, Yati, Kara, and Mando, who have been supporting this podcast. Give as little as $1 to get a copy of the show notes with all the references, a shout-out at the end of the next episode, and the occasional bonus episode. Patrons also now get a scannable Spotify magnet of the podcast through the mail. I've just sent the first batch out. And if you can't join us on Patreon, just tell your friends about this podcast. That works too. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at HerStoryCPod. It's HerStorySEAPod. Next time, we'll meet Tribuana Wijayatunga Dewi, also known as Diagitarja, a Javanese queen regnant and the third Majapahit monarch reigning from 1328 to 1350. There are so many more stories to tell and we're just getting started. This podcast was written, hosted, and edited by Agas Ramirez. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you again next time. Sampai jumpa lagi! terms colonization or decolonization in bits and pieces. But do you find European colonization too broad and too complicated to get into? Well, there is now a podcast for you. Join me, Fidelity, on an introduction through the history of colonization. We will cover not just the major wars and conquests that took place, but also the perspectives of people who have been neglected in the grand Eurocentric narrative of discovery in colonial lands. You can find the History of Colonization podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast from.